morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser. I'm sitting here with Don Weinstein, and Don is the head of product at ADP, but that doesn't come close to describing the span of his work and the span of his career. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself very quickly. Well, thank you, John, and, and thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to come back. So, yeah, I have responsibility at ADP for all, all product and technology. And, you know, I think, I, I believe it, within the human capital space, we're the biggest out there. And that also means we have a lot of coverage and a lot of span. So, you know, our organization in, in technology at ADP, it's 9,000 people and we're in a dozen different countries around the world. And we, you know, support 810,000 clients, about 41-ish million at current count of uh, paid employees every single pay period. How did you end up here? I, mean, I can't imagine that, that when you were a little kid playing in the sandbox, you went, hmm, products at ADP, that's it. So, so, so how did you get here? That's a good question. I, uh, I started my career, I don't know if we've ever had this conversation, I worked on telecommunication satellites for the General Electric company. So... <gasps> Things like uh, Dish Network, uh, GPS. So now the connection should be obvious to you from there to... No, I'm just... I'm just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally obvious to me. I was... Um, uh, interesting story. I was at IBM, the previous stop. And I was actually in the, in the strategy group there at the time when IBM was moving into business process outsourcing. In particular... Uh, I was working closely with the folks who were working on HR outsourcing uh, within within the global services arm of IBM. And we were really looking at the business and we were looking at the model. And we had some very smart people doing some very good work. But the thing that I kept struggling with was everything was everything was custom. And it was the classic, you know, we used to call it your mess for less, lift and shift. We'll take whatever you're doing. We'll use the same software that you're operating on. In many cases, the same people, because you would rebadge the people. But we're going to charge you. We're going to do it for less money than it's costing you and make a profit. It was a risky endeavor. Right. So, and, and at the end of the day, the customer is the one who bears the brunt of that risk. Right. Because if I outsource it to you and, and you don't do a good job, I mean, you're going to let 20% of the people go and maybe more because you need to make a profit on top. I'm taking a risk. I don't think people really appreciated that that risk. So I was in the business. I was really interested to say, where can I find a better model for how to do this? Where, you know, it's obviously it needs to work for the, the company, but it really has to work for the clients where I can deliver you consistent, repeatable, high quality service that saves you money, but takes, you know, but it takes risk out of the equation. So I, I literally, I was looking around, I was studying everybody in the industry. And I became enamored with ADP from the outside looking in. So much so that I was, I was sort of advocating within the IBM corporation at that time that we need to make our outsourcing model look more like ADP, right? Let's bring the best practices. Let's run it on our technology, not the client's technology. So much so that at one point, uh, one of the very senior executives at IBM said to me, uh, I don't want to hear about ADP anymore. You know, come up with another model. <laughs> and then... I got a call from a recruiter who was recruiting on behalf of ADP. Uh, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I've spent a lot of time being fascinated by this company from the outside. So 
let me go and, and, and take a look at it from the inside. So, you know, obviously, uh, I went through the interview process and, and really met some super smart people that I really admired and, and was delighted when they gave me the offer. And it was interesting having looked at it from the outside in to, to turning to the inside, some things that, that I didn't really know or come to appreciate until I got in, inside the organization. We'll talk, we can talk a little bit about the culture that you and I were just chatting about before about uh, an organization that's, that's fairly big and fairly successful, but very humble. Like sometimes we hear a lot like, Oh, you guys don't talk enough about what you're doing. And, and you're right. And, and we should do more of that. But you can see the culture of the organization is, a, is very humble. The other one that I became instantly enamored with was, at the time, an underutilized asset was the data. You know, coming out of the engineering background, I've, I've always just been fascinated by uh, analytical applications. And there was so much data that we were sitting on. And, and at the time, I don't think we, we were massively underutilizing it. And I kind of made that a, a personal mission to say, no, we're going to be known for something. We're going to be known for our data, for the quality of our data. We have the, it's, what's interesting about it is we have both quantity of data because of the breadth of our coverage. As I mentioned, 810,000 clients, 41 million people that we're serving right now. If you look back, we did over the last 10 years, we've touched more than 90 million people but also the quality of the data, because there is a lot of bad data floating around our industry. And the one thing that we know is if there's anything that's high quality data, it's going to come out of the payroll system. Right. Because if it's wrong, somebody will scream at you. Right. I think what's underappreciated, though, is how much data we actually get out of, out of payroll beyond just compensation. Like, for instance, one of the best things we know is, is turnover and retention, because I know when you started and I know when you stopped, sometimes better than uh, than HR or better than benefits or anything else. There's many, many more things like that that we could reverse engineer, right? We know who's taking retirement benefits. We know who's taking health benefits. We know who's taking other types. And now we can start to cross-correlate. So that was probably the biggest aha moment for me was the opportunity that we had in data and the path, the journey we've been on ever since to say, how do we turn that around and put that into something that's going to be useful for the clients? There's so many directions to go. I, I don't know. Do you know that I was an engineer? I didn't. Well, I know now. You know now. You know now. I think that. I think that's. I think that's where our conversations will will go in the future. I want to start with. There's 810,000 clients, and so and so ADP is as close to a household name as you get in this industry. Mm-hmm. And the challenge of presenting the complexity of ADP. 810,000 individual clients, your marketing department is amazing, but, but, but there's so much clutter in that conversation. It must be a perennial headache um, to, try to, to try to sort out how do you streamline that so that you get the message clear from sender to receiver without making it so simple that you lose the value that's, that's available. So, so that must that must be center of, of mind for you from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a great question. I would like to describe it as that's a good problem to have. <laughs> First class problem. The good news here, I think, or the the interesting side is we actually just recently launched a, a brand refresh campaign. And so, to your question, how do you cut through the the complexity of that? Is you stop worrying about us and you even stop trying to make distinctions about the, the the client companies and you go to the end of the chain and it's it's the workers right because you're right 
Small business is very, very different from a large global enterprise. But a person who's working in the marketing department of a small business and the person who's working in the marketing department of a large enterprise, they have more in common than you realize. And, you know, at the, at the core, what do, what do people want? You know, they want to, I mean, clearly they want to be paid. They want to be paid on time in the right amount. You know, they want to have a good experience at work and they want to have simple technology that they can use. And so if there's, if there's one common thread running through not only everything that we've done, really what we, what we talked about yesterday during our, um, our analyst day event was ADP's focus on the workers and stepping out of the corporate office for a second. Let's just go to the work, go to the place that, where the work is happening who is doing it and focus on them. And so to that point, the brand, uh, the new brand that we unveiled, if you saw it was like a cute little alliteration there, the ADP, they turned it to always designing for people, kind of a people and worker first message. And we started running our first television ads that I don't remember ADP ever being on TV before. So we ran a, a, a television advertising campaign. And in the campaign, we featured the employees of our client companies. We had everybody from uh, the Tabasco company, maker of Tabasco uh, sauce, right. big fan. We had we had Air France uh, was one of the clients. We had the cupcake shop. I mean, these are very, very different businesses. But what we showed was, well, here is a worker who's making Tabasco sauce or a flight attendant who's getting ready for a trip. And and that became that common unifying thread that we could pull through the marketing and the branding. And here's the good part is that the branding actually lines up with the product strategy. That's <laughs> highly useful when that comes together. So everything that we're doing and everything that we're working on with our, with our, our latest generation of products is really focusing on, on workers and managers. Uh, it really started with, started with our mobile application. We, we've talked about that. We launched our mobile app in 2009, and now it's still one of the, the most popular mobile applications in the entire world of business. Not in HCM. It's number one in HCM. But in the entire universe of business applications, it typically runs in the top five. One mobile app used around the world by all of the workers. Now, the folks who are running the enterprises were using, and we've got different solutions, as, as Carlos Rodriguez, our CEO, mentioned yesterday. You know, like we don't sell the same technology to a, a, a one or a two person entrepreneurial company as we're going to send to sell to a large global enterprise to run kind of the back office. But the face to the worker is all the same. And that's how we kind of incorporated that into the brand campaign as well. And it's, it's early stages, but I will tell you, you know, we got some really great coverage out of that. Uh, you know, you, you do a lot of paid media, but the one of the ways you can look at it is also the earned media that came out of the campaign. Some good coverage and, uh, you know, the clients loved it. Our associates loved it. It made them all feel really proud of the work that they do, you know, helping people in their work lives. So I'm going to go down the next road and... I think what's interesting about what you just said is the way that it parallels what you've had to do to turn data from a great big pile of information into something useful. Yes. Right. So, so it's almost, it's almost the inverse problem where you got to start with the individual worker data and roll it up. And I, I had a chance, I don't know, a dozen years ago to consider the value and the expense of turning ADP's data in from a bunch of cuttings on the cutting room floor into something super valuable, and it was a Herculean task. So talk a little bit, because that's your work, right? That's, I mean, that's, 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 that's the trajectory that you've been on. That's how right. that, how'd that happen? 
Well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> That's for sure. And we started even, we started building out a data science team before we even knew what that was. Actually, today it's it numbers in the hundreds of people because it is, it is a Herculean task. And you get into the, the universe now and you see there's all these different sort of titles. One of the, the popular ones, I love new age titles. I, I'm just fascinated by them. So the one that you'll hear now is Data Wrangler. Have data you heard Wrangler. that one? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's a, that's a good one. So there's a lot of wrangling to do first because we had all the data. And we knew the data was right, but a couple of things. One is it existed in different pockets. In some cases, the, the underlying meaning wasn't always perfectly clear. Like I said, I knew it was correct, but what did it actually mean? And sometimes when you create data for one purpose it, and then you try and repurpose it, if you don't exactly understand not just the data point itself, but the context in which it was gathered, you could end up you know, committing data, data malpractice, right. uh, to be quite candid about it. Built out a huge team. I will say uh, the technology has evolved a lot. You know, if you look back at where we were uh, 12 years ago to where we are today. So things like technologies like like Hadoop that enables us to pull all of the data together in a giant cluster and start to run machine learning and self-discovery algorithms against it. You know, that wasn't there. You know, when we first started... The, the thing that, that you'll see that we're doing is we're always very cautious about not overstating what we know. And, and that's important to us because I think we want our brand to stand for, if we say something, you can count on it. We're not just, you know, pushing out a bunch of, of stuff and nonsense. So we started out very simply with, I got a lot of data. It's in different formats. I can't make sense out of it yet. But here's something I do know. I know how many people we paid this week. And I know how many people we paid that week. And I know that for sure. And if I take those two numbers in context, I can tell you something about the economy. So we created the National Employment Report, and that was an enormous success for us. And, and we've been doing it you know, every month for more than, uh, I think we're in our 13th year now of the, the NER, the National Employment Report. And so we've just methodically moved down the path to saying, okay, so what else do we know for sure? We came out with this workforce vitality index, because the other thing we do is I know how many hours people are working. So we can look at not just our people employed, but our hours trending up or down. The one that's been very popular lately is wages, right? Are people getting paid more or less? Like there's growth in the economy. We see the job grow, but is that good growth or bad growth? Are these good jobs or, or, or not as much? And now we're, we're, we feel like solid and stable there. And we're starting to push past it into some uh, really additional, uh, exciting use cases. Like, can I tell you my personal favorite? So because, and, and I think only ADP can do this, because we have such a, a breadth of data that we can see people when they move from one uh, ADP client to another ADP client. And we were talking, we were talking about, you know, ethics and privacy right. around this before. Everything I'm talking about, it's, it's aggregated. It's anonymized. We have complex hashing algorithms in place. We have separate teams. So we've got the, the data wrangling team that's responsible for getting the data. We have a different team, the data science team. We don't cross paths on those. I had to, had to, had to put that caveat out there, but sure. here, here's the analytic that just fascinates me. So I can see if somebody goes from company A to company B. But I can also see when somebody goes from company B to company A. And I can look at the position uh, and the compensation. And now we know, and we've shown in our data, we published this, when people move jobs, they typically get a, an increase in compensation when they move. So now I can tell you if people are moving to your company, and we would do this, we wouldn't do it at a, uh, for privacy purposes. We wouldn't do a, a single A to B movement, but I could define a basket of, of 20 companies and say, well, if somebody from one of these 20 companies comes over, 
what is the premium I have to pay to attract them? And and if one of those companies takes an employee from me, what is the premium that they are paying to hire from me? And if I can take those two ratio, two numbers and put them into a ratio, I believe that is the best, most quantifiable metric of a company's employment brand that exists. Well, there is not a good metric out there that exists today. And again, I wouldn't say that that's a perfect metric, but that's going to be light years better than anything out there. If I want to hire an employee from you, I have to pay a 20% premium. If you want to hire an employee from me, you're only paying a 10% premium. That tells me something about your employment brand. That's really interesting. Can you get granular enough to, to bunch that by profession? So, Absolutely. So by, by location? By that. So that's where, you know, like, we're joking about it, but you know, if you want to do big data, you got to have big data. Right. You got to be, and, and in some cases, you know, ADP were big. In some cases, being big can be a, a disadvantage. You know, you, you're not able to move, you know, kind of as nimbly as a small startup. But where it really is a tremendous advantage is having that kind of scale of data that we can look at it by location, by, uh, by profession or job. I think we're at about 3,200 different jobs now, uh, in our jobs taxonomy that we're able, and we're, we're continuing to push. Because it's funny, as, as many as we have, the client's like, no, I want more granular. I want more granular. I want more granular. Um, so we'll see how far we can get with that. But that's the key to life is having the rich underlying data set. I, I can think of an armload of companies in the data and analytics space who would like that as an input. Are, yes. are, are you licensing out to... Um, other data manipulators. We're having some conversations to see where that would go. Um, it's it's always important to, to think about the use cases, but your instincts are, are spot on. And what's interesting, if I think about uh, a number of those those types of organizations, you know, what distinguishes us again is the quality of the data. So when I when I know something, I know it for sure, right? When we know your location, compensation, organization. Those are just incontrovertible facts, and those are not as easily rendered in some of the other organizations. I'm not going to name names here, but I would just posit that, again, there's a lot of data malpractice happening in our industry, and there are a lot of folks who have data, but they won't tell you about the quality of it. I know because sometimes they'll come and try and sell their data to me as a customer and tell me what they think they know about my organization. I one I had a meeting where I just laughed out loud. And <laughs> 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 left the meeting. So that's great. Yeah. Felt good about ourselves after that one. That's 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 interesting. So that that gets pretty complicated though. The the thing that the thing that I was thinking about as you we were talking is this old joke. Data science has two components. 80% of it is cleaning data, and 20% of it is bitching about cleaning data. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds sounds like you have found some ways to be effective in in the... Because because the the data that comes in, while it is hyperfactual, it's also dissonant Mm -hmm. because company A thinks about itself in these ways and company B thinks about itself in these ways. And the overlap between the two circles that makes the Venn yes. diagram, you have to work to make that That's more right. complete. So talk about that a little bit. Well, for sure. So, so job title and position has been probably the, the hardest part. Mm-hmm. 
And then even within that, let's say I can get the job title and the position right, being able to look at, you know, level of, of so, okay, you're, you're an accountant. Are you an accountant one? Are you an accountant two? Are you an accountant three? Because that's how organizations kind of think about it. And so that's where the locus of energy is going right now. Again, there's countable data that we have out there. And then it gets interesting if I can start to pull some of these other factoids together. And so that's where we're looking at our own internal information. We're also looking at trying to mash up with some external sources, publicly sources. Look, there was a big case that that, that just got resolved uh, earlier this week. The LinkedIn case. The LinkedIn case. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of us were kind of sitting on the, the sidelines watching that one. And, you know, we're on we're on two sides of that equation because on the one hand. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> on the one hand, yeah, you know where I'm going with that. But on, on the one hand, yeah, there's some external sites that we would like to be able to tap into that we think could enrich our data. Same time, there are a lot of folks who would, who would like to tap into us. And so we need to be mindful of that. But at least in the context of this conversation, I think that's where uh, the whole world is going first and foremost in terms of how can I just triangulate? So I've got my data. I do my best job of, of wrangling it. And now I'm going to start to ping a bunch of additional sources and see if I can't paint a richer profile out of it. Getting people uh, involved in the problem as well, crowdsourcing that effectively, I think is a good thing to do. But it's also a false trap that you can fall into if that's your primary source. Right. And again, that's the difference of what we're doing versus what some other folks are doing, where if you're exclusively crowdsourcing, you have a bias built into your data set. Whereas we have a core data set and we may use the crowdsourcing to test and look for outliers. So this is going to end up falling in your lap as part of market education. You're talking a lot about data quality, and you're talking a lot about mm, sort of layers of data quality. Right? Right. Right, right. You, you know, so, so you get the perfect clean stuff, yes. and, then, and then in order to make some prediction, you actually need to supplement it with data of a lower quality. And I don't, I don't think that there are very many people in or out of data science who actually know how to think about and evaluate levels of data quality. So talk about that a little bit, because, because that's an area in need of serious engineering, actually. It's an area in need of engineering, and you also you also brought up education as well. So it's I'll hit it I'll hit it at two layers. Let's start with the engineering problem. So data quality, it's you're right. Most people don't actually think about it, and it's it's scary. You've heard me use this term malpractice a few times, but I, I see that running rampant through our you know our domain in, in, in human capital management right. right now. We went from a period where nobody even thought or talked about data to a period now where people are like, yeah, I guess data is important, but there's just so much junk being pushed out there. I've seen it. I've talked to, let's, let's be clear about this. In my role, I get pitched by other, everybody. everybody because they either want to partner with us or be bought by us. And so they share a lot of information. Obviously, if we're going to go down that path. We right. need to get under the covers. And I look at what they're doing. 90% of it or more is just garbage. Okay. It's just really, really bad stuff. And that, that bothers me because on the one hand, you know, the old version of HR maybe had a bad reputation because it wasn't data driven, but I think it would be even worse. You know, bad data is actually worse than no data. So one of the things on the education front we've been talking about, we actually had, you know, obviously this morning, uh, Marcus Buckingham gave a, a presentation to our, our group and he's been leading the ADP Research Institute. We've talked about, do we need to do an education series about data and how to use it and put that out there? It, again, we could do it as like a, 
a public good and put it on the research institute site. And you know, this isn't this isn't about a business model. This is about elevating the profession. So just ask a couple of basic questions when somebody shares with you some data or some analysis to say, well, what does that mean? What does it prove? You know, where did the data come from? How do you test it to know that it's accurate or not? I don't think we inspect enough. So, and then if I could get at the second part of the problem, which is, okay, so then how do we engineer around some of these difficult issues? Like performance is one of my favorite. We talk about, we talk about quality of hire for a second. That's an interesting thing, right? It's something that in, in my role, I lead a, I lead a large, large organization. We hire over a thousand people a year. So I'm really interested in the quality of hire. And I know we don't have great information about it, um, especially if we're looking for our performance rating system. That's not a good place to look. But are there other factors that I can look at, like who's getting promoted, who's getting above target like bonuses or raises? You know, those are more tangible factors than a subjective rating that's you know biased by the individual rater. You know, if we're all constrained by a, a certain pool of, of you know bonus dollars available, that starts to give me a little bit different insight about, well, who are the top performers of an organization? One of the things I'm interested in is which of my managers and team leaders do the best job hiring because I want to be able to track people longitudinally through their career and say, I've got somebody here who's a real star. Let me go back. Well, who hired that person? Not who do they work for now, but who hired them? And can I start to find those folks who are the best recruiters and the best uh, hires in the, in the organization and create data that don't easily exist today? So we should have a much longer conversation about how do you measure some of this stuff, right? My, my theory about how you get at the question that you're asking, which is quality of hire. Here's what we know about quality of hire. 50% of recruiting decisions are understood to be mistakes by month 18. Mm -hmm. There's no other function in the organization that's allowed to fail that routinely. <laughs> right. So yeah. so what do you know? You know that on day one, it's a honeymoon. That's right. And by month 18, 50% of the time, it's a divorce. And so what you want to know first is, is the hiring manager still happy with the decision? So that's just a thumbs up, thumbs down every 30 days out mm -hmm. of time. And as you start to accumulate that data, You'll understand by hiring manager where the falloff is. Yeah. Once you understand where the falloff is, then you can ask the next set of questions so that instead of having to come up with a measure of quality or some assertion about quality, you actually track the evolution of satisfaction with the process and at the places where it becomes a defect. Yeah. That's where you go to investigate next, right? So I think that's actually a pretty easy thing to set up. Uh, and by the way, you, you, you intuitively went to a place where we like to go as well, which is if I'm trying to assess like the, the manager's view and the quality of hire, I shouldn't be asking, well, is, is John a good hire? I should be asking, am I happy with my decision? Exactly. Would I hire John again if I could? Right. And what we're doing there, uh, and Marcus talks about this as well a lot, is I might not be a good assessor of you, but I'm a good assessor of my own intent. Right. And I can assess fairly. If I had to do it over again, would I? Would I? And that is, that is a fairly reliable, answerable question. Much more so than, well, was John's performance rating a 3.2 or a 2.9, which is almost useless. It's completely useless. It's a measure of politics and not a measure exactly. of anything else. So we're going to exhaust the time. I'd like to do some more. 
I would like uh, that as right. well. So, so let's let's get scheduled for some time after the big HR tech conference and and have a deeper conversation. And let me just say thanks for doing this. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. All right, great. Mm-hmm.